Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, November 19th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, uh, we haven't talked about the news since, I think, last Wednesday. Uh, we have, the, you know, all these TV recap episodes and stuff that we're doing and water coolers and all that. So uh, let's dive into the news. We have a lot to discuss. Um, Brad, this morning was apparently an onslaught of Star Wars information. So why don't you walk us through some of the, um, you know, the most important and interesting stuff that we learned today? Well, the Emperor is back and he is a bird. <laughs> <laughs> my god i would love that so much <laughs> just totally uh, inexplicable never mentioned <laughs> no the, um so they're obviously still you know keeping a lot of stuff under wraps because this is the final chapter of the skywalker saga and jj abrams is uh, a big man of mystery um but the entertainment weekly did have a big cover issue today for star wars where J.J. Abrams opened up a little bit about um, production, and what's interesting is that they uh, have three fewer months of post-production on this movie, so they're actually putting it together extremely quickly, but despite having such a truncated window, uh, Abrams actually feels much more confident and comfortable with where The Rise of Skywalker is at uh, than he did while he was making Force Awakens. Uh, in the article, he said, quote, we had more reshoots on Episode 7 than this one. We had more story adjustments on 7 than this one. We didn't know if these characters would work, if the actors would be able to carry a Star Wars movie. There were a lot of things we didn't know. But on this, we knew who and what worked, and everyone is doing their best work I've ever seen anyone do. But the ambition of this movie is far greater than Force Awakens, and what we set out to do is far more challenging. Everything is exponentially larger on this. And so, you know, we're... Um, We'll get to see that, you know, play out narratively, too, because uh, there, there's actually a time jump between Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker, uh, roughly a year. So everyone is a little bit more of a seasoned uh, resistance hero. Ray has been training more um, and Finn and Poe get to do a little bit more. Uh, Oscar Isaac said specifically he wanted to get Poe out of the cockpit more often. Finn uh, will be a little bit less of, you know, uh, a comedic 
uh, kind of hero since he's had you know some some kind of silly moments here and there, and I guess he will will see a different side of uh, Finn than we've seen before. But perhaps the the biggest thing that um, was discussed was the idea of Rey and her uh, origins. You know, it's uh, the Last Jedi basically told us at least through the the eyes and uh, mouth of Kylo Ren that Rey's parents were filthy junk traders and they traded her for drinking money and they were dead, buried in a, a pauper's grave on Jakku. Uh, it's, there's been some debate as to whether or not we can believe Kylo Ren, whether or not he was just trying to manipulate Rey, but she seemed to kind of accept that and almost know deep down that, you know, there wasn't anything special about her parents and that they weren't ever coming back for. Mm-hmm. But that's but that's not really the end of this mystery. Um, and Daisy Ridley actually talked about this, and she said the quote, the parents thing is not satisfied for uh, her, meaning Ray, and for the audience. That's something she's still trying to figure out. Where does she come from? It's not that she doesn't believe uh, what Kylo Ren said, but she feels there's more to the story, and she needs to figure out what's come before so she can figure out what to do next. So the idea of who Ray, Ray's parents are, whether or not they are people of significance may not matter, but her strive to find out who they are and where she came from is still important to her and just because her parents are nobodies doesn't mean that the her entire family is of nobody so even though it seems pretty clear that she's not a skywalker it doesn't mean she's not descendant from somebody else who has you know strong force abilities uh it's interesting to me that she said it's not that she doesn't believe it but she feels there's more to the story um brad what where is your head at this point in the cycle you know we're, we're what a little over a month out from uh the rise of skywalker and we've gone through so many iterations of um you know being worried that jj abrams might retcon the, some of the decisions made in last jedi and all that but based on you know this quote and some of the other stuff that you've been writing about and, and reading about, what what are you feeling about the rise of Skywalker and how it's going to sort of wrap all this up? Are you optimistic about it? I mean, if anything, I think I, I feel like who she is will be important. Her parents, as far as their identities are concerned, it's not going to be any bombshell. Um, some maybe something in her family will give her ties to you know, like I said, somebody who is force sensitive. But at the end of the day, I think it'll probably be this this mix of. Uh, kind of what where we started, where anybody can kind of become uh, a, a Jedi. You don't have to have this, you know, pure midi-chlorian-ridden bloodline like the Skywalkers, uh, which have had endless trouble with the Force, uh, you know, any, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I feel like we we'll, might have this reconciliation where J.J. Abrams isn't really fixing anything because he's talked, you know, a couple times about how he didn't really have to fix anything that Ryan Johnson did, and it didn't upset how he saw the overall uh, story arc playing out. So I feel like what Ray will learn will just be where she came from, and that will give her an idea of her place in this, which is what she was seeking in The Last Jedi to begin with. Mm-hmm. And it might might give her that confidence she needs to realize that she can be a hero and she doesn't need to you know, come from a line of heroes to, to live up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good read. Um, let's talk very briefly about the writing credits for The Rise of Skywalker. A story came out, I think, late last week about that. Um, you mentioned trouble earlier, and I, I think this movie, it's fair to say, started out on a bit of a rocky footing because Colin Trevorrow was hired to direct this, write and direct this project originally, but uh, obviously Abrams has come on to take over. But where does the writing credits stand now brad yeah so uh the writers guild of america recently uh did their arbitration for the movie which is where they determine who you know uh, gets the official writing credits when the movie comes out um and colin trevorrow and Derek Connolly, who left the project 
um, back when they parted ways with Lucasfilm amicably in September of 2017, will receive a story by credit. Uh, and that means that whatever Trevorrow and Connolly worked on before they left the project, um, a, a, a certain amount of it was left or used in some capacity in what J.J. Abrams and Chris Terrio did for The Rise of Skywalker that they, the WGA determined that they deserve to have a story credit. Um, it's not really clear, you know, uh, exactly what those elements might be or how much they contributed to the story, but I, I would imagine that maybe there are just some basic elements at play here that Abrams and Terrio used, um, you know, whether it was intentional or not, uh, because Abrams had previously said they started from um, started over, basically. They didn't have a story or anything set up. So, you know, I, I guess we'll I – don't, I don't know if we'll get a definitive answer as to what changed between Trevorrow and Connolly's, you know, story ideas and mm -hmm. when Abrams and Terrio came on. But it seems like there's at least some crossover there. And some people have speculated, like, well, this could just be a courtesy deal, you know, because Connolly and uh, Trevorrow worked on it for so long that they just get story credit, so they get residuals. But this is WJ arbitration, uh, which means that this is something that the Writers Guild of America determines, and it has nothing to do with Disney's deals with any of the writers. Yeah, I remember reading a story from Daisy Ridley talking about how I think Trevorrow's script brought her to tears um, and and sort of being curious and, and wondering if we would ever see or hear about what that might be. But this uh, decision maybe indicates that at least some of those elements potentially that, that maybe brought her to tears might actually still end up in the final movie. So, um, yeah, maybe in the, the eventual tell-all book that happens, uh, that hopefully happens one day, we'll, we'll learn all about the uh, the specifics on that front. But um, before we leave the galaxy far, far away entirely, let's talk very briefly about the Star Wars holiday special. Uh, John Favreau has talked in the past about wanting to make a new version. Uh, Chris, apparently he's kind of serious about this, right? Uh, I honestly don't know how serious he is, but at a fan, ev fan event for The Mandalorian, uh, he, he said, quote, I've been thinking about it. It's ready. The ideas are ready. I think they could be really fun. Uh, and he, he has a little bit more to the quote where he talks about how they drew on uh, Boba Fett from the Star Wars holiday special to, in influencing you know, the Mandalorian. So um, it sounds like he's not against the idea. At the same time, it's not like he's definitely going to do it, but it's definitely something he might be interested in doing at, at some point. But uh, I guess we'll see. You gotta love those definitely maybe stories, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. They're the more my favorite kind of stories. <laughs> um, I mean, the the uh, original Star Wars holiday special. Brad, you've seen that, right? Or, or am I mistaken about that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I've seen it. Okay, I have not seen. I've not, not not bothered to seek that out. Actually, do you would you recommend people watch it? Like, is it uh, as a curiosity? Is it worth you know worth people's oh, time? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's worth people's time, but it's absolutely like fascinating to watch because it's such a weird thing. Like it's uh, because it's it's not a Christmas special per se because it's Life Day that they're celebrating, but they try to do similar things that a Christmas special does. Like there's a musical moment and there's an animated component, which is where Boba Fett was first introduced and where they took those elements and brought them into the Mandalorian. But it's it is so so weird and it feels so out of place with everything else in Star Wars. But having said that, I feel like Favreau is a big enough Star Wars fan and he knows how to make stuff like that work that I think he could do something that was cool while also being kind of a cheeky tribute to the holiday special, especially because, you know, I mean, he, 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 I think he has a genuine affinity for it because they even snuck in a life day reference into the first episode 
of the Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, and and he directed Elf too, so he knows what to do with holiday movies. So I think if anybody can pull this off, it's probably only John Favreau. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chris, if if they dropped a new holiday special on Disney Plus, would you be interested in checking that out, or are you just totally out? Is that, uh, is that too I mean, niche even for you? I mean, I haven't even watched the second episode of The Mandalorian yet, but I guess I would get around <laughs> to seeing it eventually. Okay, all right. Uh, well, let's talk about, I guess, maybe the future of the, the movie-going landscape as we know it. So yesterday, the Wall Street Journal um, published a report saying that the Justice Department is basically moving to completely wipe out this uh, court decision that happened in 1948 called the Paramount Consent Decrees. And there's a lot of legalese here, and I'm going to try to just like simplify this and, and um, you know, get through it as, as easily as possible. But I encourage you to, to read the full article because it provides a little bit more context than we're going to get into here. Uh, but basically, for the past 70 years, this ruling has sort of regulated how movie studios distribute uh, their films to theaters and if this is actually overturned which it appears like it's going to be um, things are going to probably change and probably not for the better so very briefly the paramount consent decrees uh, in the late 30s the Justi justice department sued the the major movie studios of the era and basically saying that they had too much control over the industry the government uh, took like 10 years, but the government ended up winning that case and the studios had to like divest and give up their ownership of a lot of theaters across the country because they used to own several theaters. It didn't make it fully illegal for studios to own theaters because Disney, for example, has still ha still owns the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood and has for a long, long time. But uh, small exemptions like that had to basically get court approval. But the large part of this was this ruling was that studios were no longer allowed to use block booking, which is like the example that I write about in the... This article is that if Paramount had a new Mission Impossible movie coming out, but the studio also knew that it had a really crappy movie on its hands, the consent decrees made it illegal for Paramount to essentially hold a theater hostage by forcing them to show this crappy movie in order to get access to show the new Mission Impossible movie. And now that ruling is about to be overturned, so it seems pretty likely that things are going to sort of take a downward spiral. I mean, the, the positives in this situation might be that studios could own theaters again uh, and, and buy their own theaters and, and on a, a more on a wider scale than they are currently. Like Netflix or Amazon could maybe buy their own theaters, uh, maybe a whole chain even, and potentially offer subscribers access to see their movies in theaters. Uh, maybe for free or probably for like a small fee, like a, a separate subscription tier or something like that. Um, Peter was speculating yesterday that maybe it could result in a, a divide in the movie chains, like major companies like AMC and Regal could end up just showing blockbusters and smaller chains might end up showing smaller films. I'm not 100% convinced that that would work because in this example, like, Disney now owns Fox Searchlight, and if smaller theaters wanted to show indie movies, like those the ones that Searchlight makes, I'm just not sure that Disney would give those smaller theaters access to just the Searchlight movies without also, uh, you know, 
basically pairing them, blockbooking them with the next big Marvel movie or Star Wars film. So um, I don't know. There, there are a lot of negatives here. Uh, I was just I wanted to throw this out to you guys because we were sort of going over these details yesterday, and I just wanted to sort of take your temperature on on your thoughts on this and and um, if you can see any silver lining to this situation. Um, Chris, what do you think first? No, there's, this is bad. This is a bad thing, and it will probably destroy movies as we know them. So that's cool. Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, a, a pessimistic uh, uh, approach there. Um, Brad, do you have any additional thoughts on this? I want to hear what Martin Scorsese thinks. <laughs> um, we got an email from uh, Sean from... Where he doesn't say where he's from, but Sean emailed us in, and he pointed out also that block booking, this practice that I was talking about, um, essentially uh, that was the origin of the term B movies, was because like the A movies and the example that I just mentioned would be like the huge Mission Impossible film, and then B movies would be the smaller movies that were attached to these uh, larger ones, and he basically says that back in you know the old Hollywood studio system days. Um, this concept of block booking was good for studios because and 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 customers and everything too because it essentially allowed the studio to mitigate their risk and spread it over the course of a bunch of different smaller movies as well as that main movie. It's not just like all of the you know the the money is riding on this one huge movie hopefully being a success. It's uh, by studio by um, theaters buying up. Uh, the rights to distribute the, all of these at once, it sort of spreads the the risk around a little bit, and it also gives or gave back then the studios a little bit more freedom to um, take some more chances and be a little bit more experimental in the types of movies that they made. I just don't know if we're in a uh, a, a movie going or a, a business landscape environment right now in 2019 or 2020 or whenever this takes effect where that same experimentation would thrive in the same way that it did back then but that is another potential positive um if if something like that could happen but anyway i, I would encourage you guys all if you're interested in this and and want to know what might happen here um definitely read the full article so uh, Brad, let's... Uh, Brad, Brad Bird actually said something similar. He he just tweeted about this today, and I was kind of interested in his uh, quick take because he, he wrote on Twitter, I actually think theaters will only get better if studios can again have skin in the game. Forcing studios to surrender their cinemas in the 40s led to the disappearance of single-screen movie palaces in favor of look-alike lowest common denominator multiplexes, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I just... It... It remains to be seen what kind of business decisions these studios are going to take, because like, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but um, Disney has been making it very, very difficult for repertory theaters to play old Fox movies, 20th Century Fox movies that used to be regulars on the repertory circuit. But now that Disney owns Fox, they're sort of like throwing those in the vault and making them way more difficult for people to access and sometimes like completely uh, unable for people to get them at all in that uh, that environment. So, you know, with Disney making moves like that already, um, the fact that they will have, you know, legal backing to return to this block booking thing, 
I'm just not sure uh, that that we should be, you know, relying on a studio's benevolence to make the best decisions for customers. But um, anyway, we'll we'll see what happens there. Um, let's talk about the streaming world a little bit. Something, uh, you know, the the clash of uh, major Hollywood studio filmmaking. Uh, the the they're giving way to streamers. Um, we've already seen a bunch of huge movies go to Netflix, and another one that just went to Netflix is Beverly Hills Cop Four, which is a movie that's been in development for like what 20 years or something brad what's going on here lots uh axel foley is now a bird <laughs> <laughs> love it it's the bird uh, episode no. so this is kind of an interesting development because beverly hills cop 4 has been uh on again off again for for a long time uh everyone was hoping it would be made at some point and now that eddie murphy is kind of enjoying this career resurgence uh it's come back uh, dolomite is my name has been very successful and, and received a lot of critical acclaim uh, he's got Coming to America 2 on, on the way from Paramount, but apparently Paramount might feel like uh, their recent uh, box office endeavors haven't been quite as lucrative as they want them to be, and they're not willing to take another risk on something that might not pay off for them after the failure of Terminator Dark Fate at the box office, uh, because Paramount has sold the licensing rights to Beverly Hills Cop 4 to Netflix and will let Netflix make the movie and make it part of their streaming library. And the deal also includes an option for a sequel. So uh, Paramount has already had a, a relationship with Netflix because they, they sent the Cloverfield Paradox to the streaming service uh, for a surprise debut after the Super Bowl uh, in 2018. And then Annihilation also went to Netflix outside of the United States after they kind of saw the box office receipts domestically weren't really paying off as well as they hoped they would. Uh, so Paramount is, seems to be trusting more and more in this model of, you know, movies that they feel might be too risky and not bring as much of a profit return for them and sending them to a streaming service. And this is kind of a big deal for Netflix, too, because they've never really ha had a major movie franchise to bring hype, you know, to any of their releases. The closest mm -hmm. they've come w would be, you know, Stranger Things, but that's obviously a TV series. Uh, so this is this could be a big deal for them. There's, some people have been talking uh, just, you know, um, amongst us, you know, colleagues, entertainment reporters and whatnot, that they feel like Netflix might be putting themselves into a position to maybe buy Paramount Pictures at some point. Hmm. Interesting. That, uh, I mean, you know, I, I feel like Paramount doesn't have the the standing that it once did in the industry right now. I think Sony is another one that there have been a lot of rumors that maybe Sony could get bought up, um, you know, in this world of... Uh, of what, studio consolidation, it, it certainly wouldn't be uh, completely out of left field if that happened. But man, that would be kind of crazy. <laughs> um, Chris, are you interested in Beverly Hills Cop 4? I know this is a project that's been in the works for a long time, but with Eddie, Eddie Murphy's career resurgence, as Brad said, is this something that, that you have maybe renewed interest in now? Uh, man, I don't know. I mean, you know, I really liked or even loved Dolomite is my name, and it was great to be reminded that Eddie Murphy can still be really funny, but I don't know if like <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop Four is the is the next thing to get me excited about what he's doing next. But I don't know. What if Shane Black directs it? Well, then yeah, maybe I'll watch, especially if it's a Christmas movie. Then I will watch it. But I guess <laughs> it remains to be seen. 
Yeah, because that's what I'm hoping for. I would love to see that happen. I don't know if, if, if that's even in the cards, but that's what I want to happen. All right, so let's talk about Warner Brothers. Uh, this past weekend marked the, what, second anniversary of the release of Justice League. And if you were on Twitter, you probably saw a lot of people talking about the infamous Zack Snyder cut of this movie. Um, Chris, what was happening here? Uh... <laughs> so even though I find it very hard to believe anyone would still even care about Justice League two years later, a lot of people do, and they want that Snyder cut. Um, for those who don't know, which I find hard to believe at this point, but uh, the Zack Snyder, of course, is the credited director on Justice League. Um, but the film was going through a troubled post-production, and uh, Warner Brothers wanted edits to the, the cut that, Snyder initially delivered. Um, but sometime during post-production, Zack Snyder had to step away because of the death of his daughter. And Joss Whedon came in and he did a bunch of reshoots. Uh, so the end result is a film that is reportedly about 80% Snyder's and the rest is Whedon's. But on top of that, there's a lot of stuff that Snyder shot that didn't end up in the film at all because Snyder's cut was a lot longer than the theatrical version. So for years now, two years to be exact, fans have insisted that the, the, the fabled Snyder cut is the better version of the film, even though they you know, haven't seen it. So they have no proof of that. And they want it to be released. They want to prove that Zack Snyder's cut is, you know, superior. So for years, they've been begging for this to be released. And on the two year anniversary over the weekend, uh, they blew up Twitter and then sort of leading lending credence to all this uh snyder himself and ben affleck and gail godot uh, and ray fisher were all on on social media sharing the same release the snyder cut hashtag and a lot of people thought this was building up to some sort of official announcement especially because you know all the actors don't (laughs) actors primarily don't run their own social media accounts they have people who do it for them so the the fact that they were tweeting out this hashtag sort of suggested this was some sort of coordinated uh promotional campaign and yeah i don't of, think any of the cast have done anything like this in a, in such a coordinated way before like all in the same day like tweeting the same message this sort of like showing this unified front right i think this was like a, a first in the <laughs> in the snyder cut lore Right. Like Jason Momoa has 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 sort of posted on Instagram in the past, but it's never been like this where everyone has come together. So a lot of us were like, oh, are they building up toward an announcement that they're finally going to release the Snyder Cut on, you know, perhaps HBO Max, which is Warner Brothers streaming service that's coming soon? And the answer is no. Um, At least right now. Right. Yeah. According to Warner Brothers themselves, they have no plans at this time to release any sort of uh, Snyder cut um, that might change someday. I don't know, but as of now you shouldn't, you know, hold your breath for the Snyder cut. Brad, do you think it would be a good move on Warner brothers part to, <laughs> to release the Snyder cut? I hate you saying that because it's, it's become such a ridiculous thing, but to actually release this thing on, maybe on HBO max, like Chris said, do you think that'd be like a, a smart decision? Because, you know, we talked in the past about how like, one of the reasons that they that people might never actually see the Snyder Cut is because it could reflect poorly on the executives at Warner Brothers who made this decision to, um, you know, to to let Joss Whedon 
to basically attach their name to the finalized theatrical cut as it exists, right? Like if the uh, if the Snyder cut is better, then those executives would have egg on their faces, and people in Hollywood hate to admit when they're wrong. So, but now one of the I think maybe several of the people at Warner Brothers who were sort of overseeing this are either in different capacity, working in different capacities at the company, or in the case of uh, Kevin Sujahara, he is no longer the head of the studio. So now that he's out, do you think that there's a chance that they actually do release this thing on HBO Max? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's There's so much demand for it, but it's hard to tell how much of it is, like, a large demand or just a, a small group of very vocal fans who keep drumming up noise. Um, and I think that it would be very interesting if Warner Brothers released it and it might even build them some goodwill, you know, among people. Um, and it would certainly be a, an interesting way to drum up subscribers for HBO Max. Um, but it just it just depends on how finished the movie really is as far as Snyder Cut, Snyder's vision is concerned with visual effects and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, p- people have been digging into this for a long time now, and they've talked to various people on production, and they've learned, like, the original score by Junkie XL was completed, and there's maybe more finished visual effects shots than people think to the point where they were almost done. So I, I don't know. You know, it's I, I, I at this point, I want to see it released just so people shut up about it. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a... It's an interesting position for Warner Brothers to be in. Yeah. I think for me, I would much rather see a brand new Superman movie starring Henry Cavill. And it seems like he is not done playing this character yet. So um, over the past year and a half, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether or not he was actually done. Uh, There were some rumors. I think uh, The Hollywood Reporter published a story in September of 2018 saying that Cavill was out and, and he was negotiating to Cameo and Shazam and that fell apart. So he's done playing the character. Um, Cavill himself has never really commented on that in a significant way. He posted this really bizarre video on Instagram. I linked to that in the show notes so you can you can find that there. Um, and that seemed to be his only comment on the situation. But now in a new interview with Men's Health, he says that he's not done playing the part yet. He said, the cape is in the closet. It's still mine. I've not given up the role. There's a lot I have to give for Superman yet. A lot of storytelling to do. A lot of real true depths to the honesty of the character that I want to get into. I want to reflect the comic books. That's important to me. There's a lot of justice to be done for Superman. The status is you'll see. So it seems like he's sort of teeing up another Superman movie, maybe even a solo movie. Um, I, I think to me, a solo movie would make a little bit more sense considering how DC and, and Warner Brothers have sort of shifted their strategy away from the Justice League model and and seem to be doing pretty well with these one-off uh, movies sort of, you know, uh, taking up different corners of the DC universe. So um, I, I've always really liked Henry Cavill as Superman. I just felt like he was never really given great material to work with all the time. So I would love to see him come back to play this role. I know that, you know, Ben Affleck is out and they're, they've got Robert Pattinson coming up with a new, a new Batman and all that, but I don't necessarily think that that means that they should... Uh, cut ties with Cavill, but what do you guys think? Do you would you want to see another Henry Cavill Superman movie, or do you think that it's better if they recast? Um, Chris, what do you think? Um, I'd be interested. I think he he could definitely deliver something good with you know a, a good script, giving him a chance to shine. I mean, you know, I I was not a fan of the the Henry Cavill Superman stuff we got, but 
his his performance in Mission Impossible Fallout proves that he can be a really charming actor, even when he, you know, de- depending on the right role. So I I think if they find a good script, they find a good director, I would I would be happy to to watch him come back as Superman. Brad, what do you think? Um, and and do, what do you think about his comic comments about how he wants to reflect the comic books? That's to me that sort of seems like. Uh, direct opposition to the Snyder, you know, grim dark approach. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a movie that I'd be interested in seeing, what's where we get a Superman that is closer to the comics and get, gets away from Zack Snyder's decisions about how to treat the character. Uh, but at this point, you know, how do you make a Henry Cavill Superman movie without having the bad taste of the rest of, you know, the DC extended universe in your mouth, Wonder Woman notwithstanding, and maybe parts of Aquaman. Um, but... <laughs> But I, I I don't know you know it's I think Henry Cavill is pretty good as Superman and it would be interesting to see him continue the role but I think it's they're in a difficult position to do that simply because of how the rest of the DC Comics movies have played out. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about our last news story of the day and that is that a Chinatown prequel series is coming to Netflix. Chris, China, what year did the original Chinatown come out and and what do you make of a prequel? Uh, yes, the original Chinatown is from 1974, uh, and now Netflix wants to make a prequel TV series with David Fincher and Robert Town. Robert and Robert Town is the the writer who wrote the original Chinatown. Um, I don't know how to feel about this. I don't think we really need a Chinatown prequel. Uh, at the same time, I'm always excited for something new with David Fincher, and the fact that it's David Fincher teaming up with Robert Town is is hard to you know not get at least a little bit excited about um it's just it's it's very strange because any you know any chinatown prequel is going to have the uh unenviable task of adding an actor who has to play you know a young jack nicholson and that's that's really hard to pull off and it you it immediately adds baggage to whomever they cast in that role so i just I don't know how to feel about this. Uh, but again, at the same time, it's hard to not get excited about a new David Fincher project. Do we know what Fincher's actual involvement would be here? Is it is it going to be like a Mindhunter situation where he directs some episodes and is sort of like the, you know, overseeing the whole thing? Or what do we know? Uh, as of now, the deal is just for a pilot and he and Town are writing it together. And there's also a hope that he'll direct it. But other than that, there's nothing, you know, official yet. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, you know, that's the thing, like, uh, the, the Fincher, uh, is, is, uh, involvement is sort of the X factor here, right? Like, like you were saying, I don't, I don't know if we need this, but especially with like something like Mindhunter, I think is a good example, right? Like that, that, um, you know, true crime sort of, uh, subgenre or whatever has been so well-worn and, and is so like tried and true. And we've seen so many different variations on it, but Mindhunter I think is, is, um, singular in its vision and its quality. And, um, you know, it, it has such a distinct look and, and a unique voice. So maybe even though, um, you know, an old school sort of a neo-noir, um, private eye story is something that we've seen a million times. Maybe Fincher could bring, you know, some, could like reinvigorate that or, or bring some same, uh, like the same sort of level of uniqueness to uh, to that kind of story. Um, Brad, what do you think about Fincher being involved with a, a Chinatown prequel? If anyone's going to get me interested in the Chinatown prequel, it's somebody like David Fincher. Uh, he's proven he knows how to handle uh, material like this, you know, with uh, Zodiac and, you know, 
playing at seven, you know, another thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where Chinatown has such a, a large legacy and it's so damn good that like, how do you do a prequel series that, you know, even measures up to something like that? And is, does it, does it matter? Is it, is it necessary? Yeah. Maybe, maybe it'll take like the Fargo approach where it sort of like tries to capture the, uh, I don't know, like the, the essence of the thing, like the tone of the thing, but it's not necessarily a slavish recreation of it or, or even like, Maybe it's set in that same world, but I don't know. Uh, just a thought. Um, okay, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode. We, we touched on a lot of new stuff over the that, that's you know dropped over the past week. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll I think we'll be back. I think tomorrow with another news episode. So um, yes, definitely stay tuned for that. Before we go, let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, Brad, let's start with you. Always on slashfilm.com. On Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and also my podcast Go Flix Yourself, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And Chris, uh, slashfilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at C Evangelista413. You can find me at slashfilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Also, if we, if, I mean, I feel like we should bring Chris's advice corner back. So if you have any uh, questions, any pressing issues in your life that you want Chris's advice for, you know, shoot those over to peter at slashfilm.com. We'll bust that theme song back out and get that thing back up and running. Uh, please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.